That's how like we're taught philosophy. That's how we're taught society's function is that like, okay, well, it needs to work for the vast majority. And if you are in the minority, shame. Um, But we're at least but at least this works for the vast majority without actually thinking about like, does it work for the vast majority? And who is this majority that is actually being like, um, like called upon through this, right? Because it's often white people. Salams, peace and blessings. You're listening to Breaking Binaries Season 2 with me, your host, Sahima Manzil Khan, known online as the Brown Hijabi. As a society, we're obsessed with explaining our world through the use of straightforward opposing categories. So, good or bad, moderate or radical, pretty or ugly, victim or villain, the list goes on. All these sets of binaries, though, tend to be quite superficial, and they hide the real complexities, the politics and the nuances of how we've been encouraged to think. Following from the conversations of season one, every episode this series, I'll be sitting down with a different friend to break down, break apart, and interrogate a different binary and see how doing so helps us think more critically about ourselves and our world, and therefore, how we transform it. In this episode, I was joined by my friend Aziza Johnson to break down the binary of majority and minority. Aziza is a research fellow in human geography at Queen Mary University of London. Her current project unpacks the racial history that informs black Muslim women's lives in London. She asks how these women create and embody practices of home whilst navigating the imperial nostalgia and racism that has been exposed through Brexit. She's also the co-editor of The Fire Now, Anti-Racist Scholarship in Times of Explicit Racial Violence, which is an incredibly important anthology and archive that I recommend. Aziza is also someone who I've generally learned a great deal from. She's expanded my analysis, particularly when it comes to white supremacy, and I feel honoured to have had the chance to bounce thoughts and ideas with her, thinking about how we can exist more fully and more complexly with sincerity whilst navigating all the burdens and lenses upon us. Assalamu alaikum, Aziza. I am honoured that you're here on Breaking Binaries. Uh, how are you doing? Yeah, uh, I'm doing all right. Looking forward to like recording this and uh, yeah, yeah, let's do it. So yeah, so we spoke about doing this um, podcast for a long time. And I think between the time that we spoke about it and now, it actually feels more pertinent or at least I've, I've kind of seen it being evoked a lot. And that binary is majority and minority. So I'm really interested by this and I think it would be helpful to begin by asking you what you had in mind specifically when you wanted to do this binary and where people might have seen majority and minority evoked um, in their lives, in their day-to-day lives. Yeah, I mean, so obviously with the term BME and BAME um, and I've been thinking a lot about what it means that so many of us have come to see ourselves through the logics of minority. Um, So we see ourselves as being a minority within a wider country, and we see justice as being served to the majority, but not necessarily the minority. Um, And I guess my question is like, what does that then do like when the when my issues that affect that are affecting minorities are seen as things that can be like, ignored or overlooked because after all it's only the minority what does that then do 
to the world we're living in, right? Um, and so I guess the argument that I, I'm really interested in us thinking about, I really want us to think about like how white supremacy is embedded in our very framing of like majority and minority, right? I really want to think about like our very, like viewing ourselves as a minority is part of a white supremacist fantasy that positions whiteness as the majority. Just like in Avengers, when, uh, like, after part one, when these, like, Thanos snapped his finger and, like, what, 50% of the world is meant to have died, and yet, like, all of the original Avengers are still kicking about, all of the people, all of the white people are still, like, the majority who are, like, leading this, like, revolution against Thanos is nonsense as a white supremacist fantasy. This is the connection. Wow. Thank you. Okay, I'm gonna, so I'm gonna reel us back a bit then and ask you, so I, yeah, I definitely have seen people using things like, even these strange terms, like I'm from a minority background. And I think that's, that feels like an off comment, even if I wasn't to analyze it too closely. It's like, what does it mean to call yourself of a minority background? I think it assumes, as you're saying, a certain context. Um, but I guess a question that I think people would raise is, okay, but why are you taking issue with um, something that maybe sounds context dependent? So for example, you know, when I've seen a news headline that says uh, the white population of Birmingham is going to be a minority soon, it does great, like it feels wrong. Um, but could it be argued that that's just like a quantity, this is, this is about, you know, numbers of people and uh, once numerically there is a minority, that's something worth noting in a country which has formerly had a white majority. Yeah, but I mean, has it ever had a white majority? I think that's what I actually kind of push back against, because that's what I'm thinking about in the language of majority and minority. Yeah, like there is no, I mean, you know, we've spoken about it a lot. Everyone's spoken about it a lot. There is no Britain. There is no Europe outside of empire right and so like the global majority the majority that has always made up britain have been cut off from the spoils of empire that now modern day britain is enjoying so like talking about any one population within these particular isles as a majority or a minority doesn't actually allow us to position ourselves as part of the wider community and wider like histories that actually do inform like how Britain has come to be. You know what I mean? Mm. And I, I guess that's why it feels loaded as well then. Like when you read that, it it all automatically feels negative that white people would be in a minority. And if that's negative, then uh, what that implies to me is that like the norm, the thing to be upheld is whiteness as, I guess, the way that we should be imagining Britain. Yeah. And even just, I mean, I remember uh, when I was doing a project on, I don't know, like curriculum, institutional racism, plug keywords here. Um, but, but when I was, sorry, it's just, you know, at universities when they're like, oh, we need to do an initiative. And it's like, you just need to handle the racism. That's all you need to do. But anyway, I remember talking to like academics about it. Um, and what about the absence of like um, black scholars in our reading list, but also just in our universities, in our departments or whatever. And I remember one of them saying, well, I mean, you know, you need to think about the percentage of like uh, black people in the UK. And is it that like, are there that many people of color missing, given the fact that there's only like certain, you know, 11 percent in the UK? Yeah. 
And I think it's always interesting to me that they locate themselves, like all of a sudden we are international, you know, international curriculum, global, whatever, then allows you to like still fall back on um, an imagination of Britain as only made up by those who happen to be within Britain, as opposed to always made up by like a global context. Um, That's really interesting. So like, when do you, when do they get to like employ like a global whatever? And when does, do they then use like local measures, right? Right. So you, on the one hand, you have like, don't get rid of rule Britannia as the song to represent the country but we also are only this island when it comes to talking about statistics and demographics yeah also because the issues that we're facing as people who are living in these islands are not separated from the issues that our people are facing more like more generally globally and i think we actually do ourselves a disservice when we see ourselves through the logic of like minority only through only in this country as opposed to actually connected to like all of the many people across the world who are also facing you know problems of over policing problems to do with housing problems to do with like like um food like um justice right all of these are common issues that we need to be looking at across our national borders instead of separating ourselves out yeah that's really interesting because i think when I hear the language of minority and majority, there's also this implication that the reason that people are oppressed or, you know, finding it difficult to access, you know, affordable housing or like an education system or welfare is because of the number of people, right? So, and then I think what you're saying is interesting because if we suddenly went to a global perspective and say, well, actually, you know, if you're a person of color, let's use that term, uh, you are a global majority and suddenly like what you've just said about these questions of imperialism state brutality, policing if that is a global occurrence then actually it's not because we're just quantitatively less that oppression exists and that feels quite useful because I think maybe when we're growing up, particularly in school for example this idea that because there's less of you you're inevitably going to face injustice kind of just seems to be indoctrinated into us yeah no i yeah i fully agree i think that that's also i guess that's why i've been sitting with like what actually happens when we get used to like telling ourselves that we are the minority that can be forgotten right because like oh well it's just our experiences that are the outlier from the vast majority and so therefore that can be and also like that can be ignored right like that if our experiences are just on the side from the others then everything can be ignored um but i but i also think that that's how like we're taught philosophy that's how we're taught society's function is that like okay well it needs to work for the vast majority and if you are in the minority shame um But we're at least, but at least this works for the vast majority without actually thinking about like, does it work for the vast majority? And who is this majority that is actually being like, um, like called upon through this, right? Because it's often white people, as we can see in Avengers, but also as we can see in this. It's just because I really hated that film. I really, really, really. I'm getting that vibe. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad. Cause I and there are random times in conferences where I will legit stop and be like, yes, and this is one of the reasons 
why Avengers was nonsense. Wow, I wish that I could engage you on this properly, but I feel like my memory of the Avengers is not. And I do feel, I actually think that that might be for my benefit in this context. Maybe also it's connected to the the way I'm framing like majority minority, because I remember watching Lemonade, um, Beyonce's Lemonade. I'm going to get to it eventually, but I remember watching Beyonce's Lemonade and being like blown away at that point in time by what was just representation, which was just like all of a sudden seeing so many images of black women on a screen in a way that I had not seen um, or really been able to like see or sit with um, up until then, right? Um, And then going to the cinema uh, to go see, what was it, Captain America Civil War at that time. Yeah. And being like, oh, this is the trash that you've been feeding yourself on a regular basis and in this film, you are a minority. Like you, Black Panther, before Ryan Coogler came in and did his business, Black Panther was very much like, yeah, he was always going to be one particular type of black man. And it was never going to be fed. Or I didn't really see that um, representation for like a wider kind of imagining of like who black people could be beyond this relationship to like a white majority, you know? That's really interesting. So I guess... A question that that raises for me is around representation then and the way that it's been given to us as kind of the solution to oppression. Do you think that is tied then to this majority minority framing? Because what I'm kind of wondering is, I'll, I'll speak from my own experience. So I'm a kid at school, I'm growing up, I'm told that the reason that I have less access to you know, wellness, resources, opportunities is because of the quantity of people who have a similar background or look like me. So I then begin to believe if I see more people who look like me in places of power, that somehow will transfer onto me. And I don't know, I'm, I'm wondering if there's a connection there between minority, majority and representation politics. Yeah, I think there is. Um, but I wouldn't say that the that representation pol- representational politics are enough. Um, because like Obama, you know? No, no, that's my point though. It's like, do you think because it's a limited framework, it makes us kind of end up with a limited solution, which is like, oh, there's not enough of me. So if I saw more of me, then I would have more resources, wellness. Yeah, it does become like, and it's not even like an easy solution because it is just, you know, it's normal to want to see more people who look like you. Um, I don't think that that's, yeah, that's normal. I think what's, like, the problem occurs when, like, we assume that just by virtue of, like, one or two more people coming into these positions, that, like, everything changes. Um, Or even that, like, the institution itself changes. Um, And I just, I that's what we need to push back against, right? Yeah. So I feel like that's links then... So I feel like that links to this breaking down that we want to do of this binary. I mean, you, it's very clear already that the language of majority and minority is hiding things. You've explained quite well why ethnic minority is not the opposite of majority. And so I guess I wanted to ask, and we have already covered a bit, but like, where does this narrative come from then? I mean, we see it in the media, we hear it historically, but is this linked to a history of kind of displaying the world in this way. Could you tell us a bit more about that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely linked to a history of displaying the world in this way, but also specifically of displaying, like, of thinking about democracy and, like, our modern world in this particular way. Because if we think about, like, you know, a lot of the theorists that these people use to justify, to say, like, as the grounding fathers of, like, you know, these countries, they're often built upon logics of, like, slavery and colonialism and we assume that by virtue of like well we can ignore this bit because that's not uh, that's just a little bit ugly and then we can focus on all of the rest right um and i think that's kind of related to the way i see majority minority being like used i don't know so i think about a lot about like emmanuel kant and rawls and all of these people and what it means that their theories were built on the kind of okay, as much good to as many people as possible, yes. right? Um, and also, at the same time, I mean, I know this specifically with Kant, like, they did not see black people as human or did not see, see black people as deserving the same levels of humanity as white yeah. people. So then what does that mean for these theories that they developed, they developed where they were trying to, like, uh, support the most number of people or whatever, when... A number of us who are now people have not historically been seen through our through, like as people, right? So it's not only that whiteness constructed itself as majority, but actually as majority and minority, there is nothing outside of whiteness actually. And I think that's quite a that changes then my understanding of this whole thing because it's kind of like this isn't just about upholding like uh, this imagined whiteness as like the i don't know dominant force but maybe also as the only relevant valuable human force so for me that also feels linked to another thing that i hear people saying when we talk about colonialism or that enlightenment kind of moment is and sometimes it's said flippantly but i think it is really interesting to analyze is when people say oh, I can't believe that such a small island managed to, you know, colonize the world. And it kind of seems to imply that the civilizational superiority of Britain must be true. Like, it must be superior because numerically, how did a small nation take over, you know, quote unquote, the world? Does that feel, I mean, how does that play into this narrative that was constructed? Yeah, like, I'm not sure whether it evokes the same. I think, like, I see how, like, with this, uh, oh, this is not even necessarily this is a small country, but also, like, specifically, you know, when you mentioned earlier how, oh, people tend to say there are so few resources and, you know, white working class kids, they don't, well, what about them? No one ever thinks about them. No one ever thinks about class. Y'all are only talking about race. You're not talking about class. When actually you're not talking about class like you can't there are no conversations about class that can begin or stay primarily within the west and the fact that you are framing a guy like you literally all of you are developing reading groups after reading groups honoring like a guy who honestly could not conceive of slavery at the time when he was theorizing marx at the time when he was theorizing like class capital what how what use is that what use is that for the world he was imagining and also more importantly what legacies does that have for the type of work um and activisms that we want to do now right 
Like, that's what I found so dangerous about the kind of, oh, white working classes are um, disappearing, you know, no one cares about them, they're disenfranchised, that's why they voted for Brexit. And it's like, well, like, everywhere, working class, like, people, like... Yeah, no, no, that just makes me think about, um, you know, the kind of slogan of, for the many, not the few, I think that was the Labour campaign slogan. Just thinking to what you're saying it still has this limitation of like a national boundary. And it's so like the many are people exploited for their labor, I suppose. But then also we as a nation become the few who benefit from the majority's labor in a more global context. But yeah, I wonder whether there's a way to even, I mean, it just feels kind of useless then to think about majority minority if we actually want to think about global dynamics. Or do you think that is some use to still, you know, is it useful to reverse the notion and, and kind of say, well, actually the global majority, um, you know, is not who you say it is. Or does that just become a kind of useless exercise? Oh, uh, I'm not sure. I think, I think no matter what we're looking at, it doesn't really matter what binary, what whatever, it's always going to be context dependent. Like there's always going to be times when it can be useful in like rallying together people. Um, and other times where maybe like there's better language for us to like discover. And also even now, as I'm saying it's useful, it might become less useful in the future and that's okay as well. Cause yeah, on the one hand, I think that there's something really important about uh, like locating ourselves within like a wider community and really thinking about that as like a global like a yeah like global struggles um that connect us all but at the same time we still need to like hold on to the specifics of our own positioning and the the privileges and violences that inform that positioning and my worry sometimes is through the language of like, okay, well, we're the global majority, we can sometimes like erase the differences that actually are very um, profound. Because even lately, I've been thinking a lot about how like the language of minority majority for BME or BAME or whatever, um, anyone who's positioned as a minority within that, then also actually ends up, can end up sometimes reifying a really problematic relationship with uh, black and pre brown people who are outside of like the West or Britain. Because we feel like we're a minority here, we also feel like we can speak to experiences elsewhere that are not ours to speak to. So it almost flattens the power dynamics then. Yeah, yeah, because there are all sorts of power dynamics that are at play both here and in countries elsewhere, you know, like we need to actually, I think it's really about like unpacking the similarities and differences across our experiences that I'm really excited by. That's helpful because I think when you were speaking, I was also thinking that say within even broadly like anti-imperialist movements or just whatever you might call like a global working class movement, I wonder if we reproduce that logic of like, well, majority rules, and then that does, as you say, just continues to leave behind, quote unquote, this minority who will always just be somehow erased, somehow not. It's a kind of misnomer because it sounds like if you're the minority, it just sounds like it's something that means like, it sounds like a almost like a, a reducing the value of the importance of your demands. But yeah. I think is 
But it's almost more than that as well, in the sense that it's like your your demands don't matter at all because like we know we're never really going to get to the minority because we don't have time. It's like the minority is there to justify the majority almost. And yeah, I think that's also like a really helpful way of framing it because it looks at like our movements right now. So like what happens within like Muslim movements when like Muslim women are treated like the minority, right? Um, Within mosques, when Muslim like spaces of community, because people often say, okay, well, who actually needs to go pray in the mosque? But that's not what mosques are, right? Mosques are spaces of community. They're like community hubs. And if you do not have a community hub available to the women in your community, you can't. We're not speaking the same language. And so I think that's kind of like all of those different ways that like minority majority comes into play. And people are like, oh, well, you know, we have that one women's officer and that's enough. Or we have that one person who, you know, kind of cares about queer issues and that's enough without actually having to like commit to a program that is actually going to prevent oppression for everyone and not just accept it for anyone, right? Like no one deserves this is really what we're getting at. See, I think that's, that I completely feel that. And I think that the kinds of retorts or opposition or whatever you want to call that I have experienced to that kind of logic is, you know, A, it's like too utopian, like not every, you know, how can everybody free? That's just absurd. Someone has to be unfree, um, which in of itself, I think, speaks volumes. But I suppose to me, what you've just said proves that there's a really important difference between like universalizing and it being like everybody's justice for everybody is going to look the exact same, as opposed to what you were saying before about like these very intricate power dynamics and like the just the nuances in between our experiences. And I think then that for me, it also proves the majority minority as on top of everything else we've said, it, it simplifies the solution. It's like, there is no, it's not just like trying to get the, the weighing scale equal. There's so much more to it. So it's about complexity, I guess, as ever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. I and mean, it's also about like, it's about complexity, but it's also about like honoring the differences amongst us and really not like shying away from that, but actually leaning into that and really thinking about how that's there's a possi- there's possibility for so much more if we actually try to like honor the differences between us, um, because that's what like you know banding banding together as a majority or banding together as a minority tries to flatten out it tries to flatten out the differences between us right and we're actually like rejecting all of that and saying like no i want us to be together in community because like i care about you and you care about me and both of us are trying to like get somewhere else better Mm. i think also like this reminds me of um Bell Hooks' concept of centering the margins. That, and I think when I first came across this idea that if you actually center, you know, the most marginalized or most uh, multiply oppressed person in your locale, your community, whatever, by virtue of that, every single person will benefit because you're pre- prioritizing or you're preoccupying yourself with kind of oppression from the the 
the view of like the root of it I think that's kind of how I took it and I found that really useful and I actually felt when I read that 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 was a parallel to in the Quran the idea of like zakat or the people who you're trying to redistribute wealth to it's always about like prioritizing the needs of the most marginalized in that society at that time and it's not saying well you know, the majority should kind of keep the wealth and like, you know, if you don't have a job or if you are a widow, then you're a minority. So that's just a shame. And I think there's something, there's a radical possibility in that. Yeah, I agree. And also like, it's not just about people that you happen to like feel in community with. It's not just about people that you happen to feel connected to. It's everyone, right? Like no one deserves to die under brutal circumstances, whether or not um, they agree, whether or not they're part of your community or not, whether or not they like are compatible, compatible with your particular principles or not, because that's also where I've seen a lot of like uh, queer phobic things that happen within the Muslim community as like, well, this isn't, it's not part of our deen. And so therefore like let's hands off instead of it being like, actually we personally believe that no one should suffer under this. I actually think that it, that's what I want to organize towards. I want to make sure that everyone actually can like just be, just live their lives without fear of abuse or persecution. Right. I think when we center safety and justice, that to me feels useful because it's like you don't... If you have a problem with somebody be, being safe or having access to justice, then really you have a problem with humanity itself. Like that's that's... They, to me, it seems a fairly simple principle. Um, yeah, th- th- I guess this is about like the way that, that those same narratives are employed to then just continue to always exclude or harm or violate somebody's rights. Um, because like, I think it's, I, I guess for me, what's most important is that we actually want to be moving towards a world where like everyone can be free and that there is justice within that. And the only way in which everyone can be free is if we actually, like, honor everyone's needs. I don't know, it's always a really weird one when you're then stuck in these conversations where people are like, okay, I recognize how that oppression affects me specifically, but I'm (laughs) fully incapable of holding how I can then, like, continue that for other people when I position them as, well, they're just a minority or, oh, that minority is now getting a little too loud. They were expecting us to do all these things for them instead of being like, no, everyone has a right to that, right? Like everyone has a right. So it kind of proves that we also might, whilst like all people of color, BAME people, BME, (laughs) are positioned as a minority within the UK, there's all these other contexts in which you may be a majority, or at least you may be benefiting from the function of that narrative of being a majority. And yeah, and I think, you know, speaking as a non-Black Muslim, that's clearly something that's employed within the UK context. Um, and I think it's, yeah, it's very easy to replicate in, in many other ways as well. And I think that Islamically, like I was thinking about this in the sense of uh resistance and like how we're kind of encouraged that a minority of people who truly you know rigorously committedly are fighting for justice they will always be you know supported by Allah they will be you know have kind of the being on the side of truth I suppose always being more important than 
being on the side of kind of like keeping everybody happy, like weighing the balance up. And I feel like I don't see that reflected at all today, where it seems like much more important to do what the whole community is happy with. And yeah, and I think I guess this also connects back to the conversation we had, like um, oh, signposting, British Library. Yeah, look at this. We did a conversation for the British Library, which is a podcast that may be out by the time this is out, may not be. I can't what really time? tell. <laughs> <laughs> but you should listen to that. But also, like, in that, it was the conversation around erasure, right? When we were thinking about intersectionality, and intersectionality is really, like, a framework where Kimberly Crenshaw was thinking about, like, this, like how... Black women specifically and women of color more generally are erased from the conceptualization of laws that are meant to tackle race discrimination on the one hand, which only focus on like men of color and like sex discrimination on the other, well, gender discrimination on the other hand, which mainly focus on like uh, white women, right? And so like there's this, there's nothing that actually cares uh, for women of color and like black women, black women specifically. Um, so I guess it's the same thing when we're thinking about the logics of majority minority and how like there's an erasure that happens there to the minority, like to the minority and who the minority is, where like your experiences, your traumas, your harms, they're not really seen as as the most important thing for any of us to organize around. Right. Um, it can always be. Yeah, it can always be parked for the sake of keeping things moving for the sake of like getting somewhere quicker um and actually what we're doing is we're rejecting that and we're saying like there is nowhere else for us to get outside of thinking about the people who are most marginalized within our world um and i'm not saying that that's like easy because it require it really does require you to be able to like be called out be checked for various things that you might say that are going to inevitably forget people who were always told to forget because their their issues are not as important as everyone else's right um but it, it it's it's a shift so that it it's not even about like what issues am i organizing on right now it's recognizing that whatever i'm doing right now there's always always space for me to have forgotten other people for me to have like other people that i need to expand this theory to actually like uh care for you know and so there's already within that like more scope to move because you're not worried about like well it's only these people that i want to and i'm going to deal with these people first and then eventually i'll get to you it's like nah i'm not i'm not saying that all i'm saying is that this is where my energy is right now but i also know that there is more there is so much more to be done yeah and once i have been pointed to the many others that are like being erased by particular narratives, I am going to work towards doing better for many more people, right? Yeah. It kind of reminds me of how we read even like pie charts, for example, where you are encouraged to just ignore whatever's the smaller part of the pie. And I think there's something in that as well that's like not wanting to deal with complicity nuance like just the fact that the answers will be difficult like i think or not even difficult but that they will require like actual analysis and i kind of feel like that's what you know kimberly crenshaw framing this thing of intersectionality is also just saying 
it's more complicated than you want it to be, but that's the reality of people's lives. I was in a um, part of like a roundtable this weekend, which um, actually was really amazing. It was like all these uh, Muslim women who were activists in like Chicago, New York, um, LA. And one thing that, um, oh, I'm Minnesota. And it was the organizer from Minnesota, Kafia. She was saying, it's not a surprise that Muslim women are the people who organize for Muslim women. And I think that was just such a good illustration, I think, of what you were just saying, in a sense, that it's like, this is what happens when we refuse to see beyond majority minority. Then the quote unquote minority is left to have to just do the work that will benefit everybody, um, but, you know, that prioritizes their needs. And I think also what you were saying about humility, I mean, what you were saying makes me kind of remember how central humility is that like to build those coalitions that we do dream of building for this free, just world demands us to say, uh, I did make a mistake or like, yeah, I hadn't even thought of that. That's just something I genuinely hadn't ever occurred to me because I've never experienced it. And I think, I just feel like we're living in a moment where there's not space for one complexity but two for that politics of care I would say where it is like yeah you're able to learn and grow and I I mean that's what I genuinely really appreciate about our relationship but I don't want to make the podcast about that but I just think it's it reminds me and this conversation reminds me as well how these things aren't just cliches like humility, care, like they're not just like, and I think they can easily become that, but rooting it to this conversation that you've just raised reminds me that it's something, it's a genuine political and like survival based thing. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent, absolutely. Um, Also because even when we're talking about like, you know, it's no surprise that Muslim women only organize for Muslim women. It's no surprise that black women have been organizing for black women and for everyone else. But also even within that, like black women are still seen as like a minority, right? Like, I mean, in terms of like black women's issues are seen as minority issues within like our understanding of anti-blackness. Issues that affect Muslim women are still seen as minority issues when we're talking about Islamophobia, um, which is particularly wild given what we know about who experiences like Islamophobia on the street most, right? Um, and so then it's like, well, what actually, what is this, like, when is this being, when does this become employed? When is this weaponized? And how does this then feed into like another, like a wider language that allows you to continue ignoring particular experiences, particular marginalized experiences, because you might be a bit closer to the top, right? You might be in more in a position of more privilege. And so it's not even just like acknowledging, oh, I didn't even think about that. It's also then organizing, mobilizing off of the knowledge that you haven't thought about that and literally thinking about, okay, so how am I going to work towards like my own redundancy so that these other issues can actually come to the forefront, right? Um, How do I make sure that someone else who has had those experiences is eventually going to be able to take over this role? I think that that also is linked to, you know, if we view the end goal as attaining the power that is currently wielded over us, 
then I think that the incentive is there to, you know, quote unquote, ignore the minority because that's not going to help you get to have the power that's currently used to oppress you. So I think this is also then linked to, you know, and I'm glad we've already brought it up, but that question of like, what is the wider end goal? Because I think it becomes easy to understand why we need different means if we have a different end. And if our end is justice, liberation, freedom for all, you know, abolition of the world as we know it, all these different things, then I think that it's much easier to say, then yeah, we, we don't need to worry about, oh, the majority's view, this every single person has to come with us. Yeah. Yeah. We want every single person to come with us. And I think it's important for us, to, as in every single person who is like, committed to abolition right um because i'm I, i'm really i'm really trying to be very specific about who i'm willing to like spend my time uh convincing uh in quote in quotation marks like because it's not <laughs> it's not the i think some things you just leave in Allah's hands right you tie your camel and then you just <laughs> you've you've helped expand definitely like a lot of the thinking around this language it's very clearly works to obscure all sorts of things and it works to benefit as you say not a majority it seems but instead a powerful the powerful right so i think it's important for this conversation about like minority majority or whatever to move toward the conversation about like uh power because that's really what uh is that's really what's informing the decision to locate a particular group as like majority or minority. And it's actually interesting because I remember uh, Gail Lewis, like she was presenting, I can't remember what, but we were talking about like political blackness and the switch from political blackness to BME. Um, and she was saying, well, you know, all of these terms are just terms that like policy people come up with at a particular point in time to like, uh, to categorize and also then inevitably oppress uh, the people that it's meant to be policing, right? Um, so initially it was the language of, like, or not initially, but before it was the language of political blackness um, because, because of fights that also they had to do in order to get us to a place where we could even employ the language of political blackness before it was then problematized for a whole number of reasons um and then there was a crisis and then they switched to the language and then policy like advisors were the ones who like made the switch to a language of bme and bame and all of that so then that then that really forces us to think about like well these terms where we're literally having to see ourselves as a minority who even comes up with these terms and if the terms are developed by like the state then that's a function of power. That's not actually a function of like wanting to just describe different groups. It's trying to categorize different people into different levels of importance in terms of like how how much organizing actually needs to happen to like care for people, you know? Um, and so it's possible to look at uh, COVID statistics that like disproportionately affect BAME populations in quotation marks without actually paying, uh, paying attention to the differences within that or without paying attention to like the brutal, brutal inequalities that are informing that statistic. So you're not talking about, you know, how like overcrowded housing, right? We're not talking about like um, overcrowded schools. We're not talking about like your everyday material circumstances that actually affect your ability to 
shield properly from uh, Corona and to also like live your life and you know just live your life more generally instead it becomes like oh well BME people just happen to be disproportionately affected and that's just what it is right yeah yeah no that's so useful because I've seen a couple of the conversations around like oh you know the problem is BAME is just you know we need a new word like what should the new word be and I think that's to me is so symbolic of how this whole conversation has successfully distracted us from those power dynamics you're talking about because nobody is ever using the word racism we're only talking about BAME, BAME people, BAME experiences and I think that to me is just like a really clear evidence that this hides power dynamics when we're focusing on and it's also just that classic thing of like uh, victim blaming I guess where it's like oh there's a pro- you lot who are the minority like you have a problem like you know because you're a minority you don't really know what you're doing you, you can't really help yourselves rather than shifting the spotlight or whatever you want to call it to power and also that was a really helpful almost definition of like what power is because I think sometimes when we say oh this hides power dynamics it's hard to know what that exactly means so yeah, thank you for that. A question that I usually ask near the end of the podcast, um, which is where we're moving towards, is, okay, you know, clearly you've shown that this binary majority-minority obscures power dynamics, it gets us focusing on the wrong parts of things, it helps us leave people behind in our building for a different future. So what... You know, can you help us think or like, what do you find in your own experience a more useful way of thinking um, about things? Is it that we should just be focusing on naming, you know, race? I mean, something that in my own conversations with you, I feel much more emboldened to name white supremacy, for example. That is something that I just wasn't really doing before. Um, So what is it that we should be naming instead of majority minority or what kind of language do you think we could move towards? I mean, definitely naming white supremacy. That's my favorite. Um, Why is that so important? Like, why is that so important? Because, like, white people hate it. Um, Sorry. Just as a, like, ooh. No, but, I mean, it's wild to me the number of conversations that I've sat in on with, like, you know, academics talking about decolonizing this or, you know, looking at this attainment gap or whatever and like no one is talking about whiteness no one is talking about white supremacy and there's no way for us to analyze how we got to this place without addressing whiteness and without addressing white supremacy like it's it's just not possible and so i think that's the same with like um whatever binary we're talking about but specifically when we're thinking about like majority minority or you know gender or race any social contract is we need to be thinking about it within the framework of like white supremacy and racial capitalism, right? So how do these binaries, how are they employed in a way that like allows the continued oppression of people um, and the continued like exploitation of like people of color, but also more generally just people, you know? Um, And so I guess that's kind of where it's not really about like developing a new term as much as whenever you are using these terms, let's actually pay attention to which bodies are we imagining as the majority and the minority? Who, what does that say about where our politics actually lie and like who we're actually trying to care for in this moment? Um, yeah, and I want us to get somewhere else, right? Like, yeah. 
that's a really helpful set of questions. You know, who are we imagining when we use these words? And maybe who would we... Also, who would we imagine if we didn't use these words? Like, what would it help us move towards, I think? But also not even that we need to, like, be imagining anyone in particular. It's more... So I've been thinking a lot about, like... um, so one of like Sarah Ahmed's book, uh, Strange Encounters, which was I think one of the first books that I like, yeah, like fully, fully read during my PhD and like, you know, obviously loved. Um, but it made me think a lot about like, so one thing Sarah Ahmed does really well is in the book is talk about how uh, the alien or the stranger only ever comes into existence through their relationship to like the self, right? So there is no nation without understanding the people who are alien to the nation, right? There is no community without us already framing people who are outside of the community as a part of us determining who is inside it, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know, for me, that became, for me lately, this has been really helpful because I've then been forced to think, like, what does it mean for us to meet, for us to imagine community um, whilst actually including people who are external to that community, right? Um, so when we're thinking about logics of majority minority or whatever, whatever, how do we imagine, like, whatever our organizing, whatever, whatever we're doing, whatever we're organizing, whatever we're teaching, is always needs to include the people who will be forgotten and who have been forgotten. Um, and that's really a practice, right? Of like, actually, okay, I was talking about this, but there were all of these people that I couldn't have included there, and now I know I need to do better. Um, and so I'm going to be moving towards this. Does that make sense? It does, it does. I think the focus on practice, particularly, that there's, in a way, like, I think lockdown has helped reveal this to me more than anything else, which is that, you know, we can't think our way to freedom. And in a sense, like, you know, even to speak about this podcast in a meta way, like the purpose of this and this idea of like thinking beyond these binaries isn't just that in doing the thinking, we somehow will, you know, be unlocking this future that we want, but in that hopefully that will inform our practices in the world. That, you know, if you listen to these podcasts, that if we learn from one another, we're able to go and then in our interactions with people, in our jobs, in our schools, wherever it is that we are in our day-to-day, in our homes, in our families, in our friendships, that we're able to enact a different type of being with people. And I think that's what, you know, you saying that makes sense to me, that this isn't just about kind of going, okay, well, I'm going to stop thinking majority-minority, job done. It's the it's what we do with that, I think. So, like, when you're actually speaking to people on a daily and you like, oh, I never thought about that. I am sorry. And I am going to work towards doing being better now, you know? So it's not, the onus isn't actually on them to then educate you on this thing that you, that they haven't, that you have never thought about. Instead, it's actually on you to like realize that you need to do better. And I think that comes back to what you were saying around like humility, because it does require a lot of humility to go into organizing, knowing that you are not going to get it right and that actually you are accountable to a lot of the people who like you have forgotten yeah. um so it's not even that's the easy way of framing it right so it's not even just like the people who are in the room at this point in time it's actually i'm accountable to the people who have never made it into this room um and then i think that shifts our focus away from like just happening to get a seat at the table yeah. versus like actually wanting all of us to be free um yeah. 
moving away from the table altogether, destroying it, if you will. Yes, it's the it's the dream. Which is no, but real talk. That's why I think at this stage in the game, like we just kind of have to be like, okay, are you about about abolition? If you are not about ab- abolition, like goodbye. Like I cannot afford. The world is very bad right now, and we cannot afford to be moving in a way that only um, pretends at like addressing some of the issues instead of actually like practicing a politics that moves us closer to freedom. Because um, yeah, you're right. We cannot think our way out of this, and I I refuse to like settle for like okay, well at least you're not you know killing me but you're ignoring the people who are killing me. That's not, we're not about that life no more. It just really quick last few thoughts. Uh, it reminds me of a conversation I was having with a friend. Um, she's Jewish and I'm Muslim, obviously. And I was saying like how I feel like there's so much within um, just the stories of different prophets in their lives that kind of prove that abolition is the kind of ethos of Islam as opposed to reformism. And I was saying like, um, you know, Musa, Moses, uh, salam, didn't go to the Pharaoh kind of asking for a place within the administration where he could probably help and speak on behalf of the Israelites. Um, he didn't say, you know, maybe free some of my people or, you know, offer us better housing. And yeah, as my friend said, she was just like, he didn't say free some of my people. He said, let my people go. And I think it is that it's like not letting some of them go. And I think that is the whole table thing. And so, yeah, I think, you know, people who kind of feel like, abolition doesn't have a place islamically i think really what tradition of islam are we engaging with because for me the the, that story in of itself is everything moses goes to pharaoh says believe in god submit to god and in so doing inherently you have to let the people go that you're oppressing you have to as you just said uh make yourself redundant i think that's precisely the the image i have there which is like you have to give up being pharaoh to believe to submit is to abolish your your self as pharaoh. There can be no pharaoh and be freedom for the Israelites. So yeah, I just wanted to add that thought. I thought that, yeah, that's praxis for me. Yeah, and I think that like praxis for you, like bringing it historical, which I appreciated. Yes, thank you. But also even, I think I've noticed it a lot more lately in like um, our forms of organizing that like if you are... I don't know. I've seen a lot of, and that's not fair. There are a lot of organizers that I really, I, I really and truly love who are like doing a lot of hard work and a lot of un, like non-recognized, like work that is not recognized on a regular basis. Right. Um, but at the same time, there are other people who have built careers off of being like a talking head and are often invited in to like, you know, represent or like the minority voice, right? Or like to speak on behalf of like people they have no business speaking on behalf of, you know? Um, And that's also some of the ways that political blackness and like colorism comes into play because political blackness often comes into play once we're talking about like police brutality against like black bodies and then like non-black people all of a sudden are like, well, like I can speak as an authority on this. Um, and I am representing all of these other voices on this instead of actually like, there are all these other people who can speak on their own behalf. Let me clear a way so that they can actually do that. Um, 
and they can be supported while they do that, you know? And so it's that kind of like, no, actually, in, like in order for us to be committed to this type of work, we need to be willing to destroy any seat of the table that we are offered. We need to, we, we need to be really be about it, you know? Um, and we can't be okay with being the one anti-racist voice in like a predominantly white setting um, because that's just not enough. It's just not enough for where we want to go. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much. I feel like that's been a really fruitful conversation. Um, is there any final thoughts or anything that I should have asked you that you want to mention before we close this up? Not in particular. I mean, it did like veer away from a conversation about like Avengers and. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, it kind of. I mean, it got real. No, no, you shouldn't apologize for that. That's good. That's you know. That's that's. You know, that's good. That's. Work. I think if I had watched it more avidly, I could have engaged you more yeah, on I, that. I feel like I was looking for a level of energy that I. Maybe you should have signposted to you earlier <laughs> so that then you could have done your homework. We could have had a different thing going. But yeah, a whole I different agree. episode. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. Sorry. That's, that's season three. That's- <laughs> <laughs> but thank you so much, Aziza. Honestly, um, this is really wonderful. And um, yeah, thanks for being on Breaking Binaries. Yeah, happy to be here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Breaking Binaries. I hope you, like me, can take something from our guest this week. Look out for episodes fortnightly, and if you enjoy, please share. The music you've been hearing is made by an old high school friend that came through, so shout out to Violence Jack at, at getviolencejackonline. Thanks to all my guests for chatting to me every week and helping us think a little more critically, and I hope, humbly, about our world. I do believe that part of the way we transform the world is by transforming the ways we think about it. Thank you for listening. I've been your host, Sahima Mansul Khan. Bye.